0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales,
2: treatment costs thousands less than braces plus they offer financing options accept eligible insurance and you can pay with your hsa fsa get 80 percent off your impression kit when you use code wondery at BYTE.com. that's b-y-t-e.com start your confidence journey today with bite
1: t-mobile has invested billions to light up america's largest 5g network from big cities to small towns including right here in yours Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial.
3: It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Paris in an amazing hotel that just reopened after many, many years of renovation and restoration, the Hotel Lutetia, which is truly the only luxury hotel on the left bank right here in Paris. If truth be told, I'm I'm definitely a shopaholic, especially here in Paris, where there are so many great opportunities to... I'm not talking about new clothing or new design or new furniture. I'm talking about antiques. I'm talking about history. I'm talking about flea markets. In fact, he's known as Mr. Flea Market here in Paris, Riyad Kneif. Is it Kneif or Knife? Knife. It's Knife. And the last time we talked, I, if, if uh, truth be told, uh, I went to the flea market and took some of your suggestions, and I found the most amazing piece, which I now have in my house. And it has great meaning to me because of what I do for a living as a journalist. I found, by the way, getting it back in the suitcase was not easy, okay? <laughs> That's great. It was a wrought iron, very, very heavy metal sign. And the sign itself, that was just the wrought iron holder of the sign, the the sign itself was basically a very heavy porcelain enamel uh, painting with an arrow pointing to the hotel concierge from a, from a hotel from the turn of the last century. And I figured, what perfect thing should I have in my house than that, right, in the travel industry? But there's, so, there's not just one flea market in Paris.
4: In fact, bonjour, Peter, and uh, welcome to Paris. Yes. So we have, we, uh, in fact, it's, we, we call the market a flea market, but in fact, it's an antiques market. And uh, it's important to say to people that flea market in USA it's a garage sales. So most of my customers when they come to Paris and they discover the the antiques market, which is the marché opus in French, which is a translation in English flea market, <laughs> they said Riyadh. It's not a flea market. It's an antiques market. It is. Yes. And uh, the market we have two markets. We have the one which is the north of Paris. If you see Paris as a clock, it's exactly at twelve. It's one building. Out of Paris, just after the Ring Road, at port de Clignancourt. So the, the market is spread in two parts. One for the clothing, you know, and sports shoes and, you know, stuff like that. Right. And the other one, which is the, the antiques, which existing since 1885. So it's the same location as the beginning. And is it open every day? It's open only the weekend, on yeah. Saturday, Sunday, and Monday afternoon. Saturday and Sunday, 10 to 6. And Monday... Let's say 12 to 4. Make sure to have all these shops open,
0: and make sure you get there early.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When yeah, the the key is very simple. If you want to buy, you have to start really at the beginning, because most of the professional buyers could be interior designer, dealers, or individual people. And the, the good stuff gets snapped up. Exactly. You don't see because as soon as they sell something, they it take goes. out. They take out from the shop and they replace in a minute.
0: Now I know some of this is changing. But for those Americans who think that you can buy everything on a credit card, think again. Only about half of the the stalls will take a credit card.
4: No. Almost, they say, 90% of the shops today say take credit cards. It's better to pay by MasterCard or Visa card because AMEX, you know, they take the the commission. Well, I've always
0: thought, listen, someone from America is supposed to to hate me when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The best way to get a discount at a flea market is to use your credit cards without ever using them. And what I mean by this is this. You go to a store or a stall. You negotiate the best price you can. And then you whip out an American Express card, and they go, no, 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 too expensive. And you say, okay, how much will you you give me a discount for Visa? And the price comes down. And then you go, okay, how much will you give me as a discount for cash? So you whip out the plastic, never intending to use it. And you use that as a negotiating tool to come down in price. And it works almost every time.
4: Yes, you know, and uh, only a few shops uh, takes uh, uh, take American Express. Most of them take Visa and MasterCard. Right, and yeah. most of them
0: don't want to take it. They don't if really you take
4: one part in cash, you know, because in, in the, in the antiques culture, when they buy something from a shop, they pay one part in cash, one part, one part in a in credit card or check, you know? Why? So maybe because this is the, the culture of antics. We used to pay, people used to pay one part in cash, one part, uh, one part in a, a official by check.
0: And I carry more than one Visa card for another reason. One of my Visa cards, which I use almost entirely in the U.S., I found out the hard way carries with it a foreign transaction fee. The other one has no transaction fee. That's what I use to buy anything outside of the U.S. because it's a sticker shock when you come back and find anywhere from one to three percent of what you paid for being charged to you for a, for a foreign transaction fee. So there are ways to get around it, but the most important thing is get there early. Yes, yes. What's at, the most, at the opening, what's the most amazing find that you've had? One of the flea markets.
4: Um, I I I found uh, I I was I was hunting on the market a few years ago for a client, uh, and uh, we when got, you say a client,
0: they they're giving you
4: a specific mandate or assignment, Riyadh. It depends. In fact, they, they most of them they they just bought a house an apartment, and they want you to help furnish it. Yes, and they want furniture. They want French antiques. And they don't know about the period, the style. Do they go with you or you just do it for them? No, no, no. I go, uh, no, they go with me. Oh, good, good. They go with me. We have a nice lunch at Macapot, <laughs> the famous restaurant designed by Philip Stark. It's an iconic restaurant today at the at flea Market. And uh, we were hunting antiques, a dining table with plus shares for a client. And I found, I found a, a, a piece uh, like a bedside tables in plaster. It was like a piece of art. Uh, and I said to the dealer, what is this piece? And the guy said, we don't know, I just hunted this piece <laughs> and uh, it's, it's interesting, but we didn't find any, inf- any information on the piece. So I said to my client, you should buy this piece. So the guy said, I don't, I don't need this piece. I said, I know, but this piece, it's not, it's a one of the kind. I advise you to buy the piece. The guy said, I insisted, okay. And I said to my clients, if I don't find anything, I will give you back the money. He said, okay, fine. We bet, we do it. So the guy bought the piece, and in fact, I did the research for, with Susbys and Christie's for two years, and in fact, I found at the flea market, the antics market, a museum piece. What is it? It's a bedside table in plaster, okay? Oh, yeah. Which represents, in fact, the real bedside table with bronze, top marble, and inline marquetry. But in fact, this piece... Was done at the end of the 19th century. It was done for a king or queen who wanted to decide what kind of pattern she would like to get on the, on the bedroom and the bedside tables. So, because of a French expert called Christopher Payne, who was the expert and uh, uh, the number one expert in cabinet maker from the end of the 19th century, and in fact, he expertized the piece, in said, Riyadh. Where did you get this piece? I said, from the flea market. He said, I cannot believe you. You know what you have? I said, no, he said, you, have, you have a museum piece. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have only four copies in the world. Wow. And you have one, one uh, for your customer. It's fantastic. So we are going to exhibit the piece at the antiques market. And, uh, and this piece is in the book, the new book released by Christopher Payne uh, for, for uh, uh, about the cabinet maker amazing so this piece my client paid a few thousand euros on the piece and then a few months later le Musée des Arts Décoratifs of Paris asked me to they wanted to buy the piece so of course my client refused and we found the story of the piece so my client is very happy
5: Toto
1: I'm we're not in Kansas anymore
0: about the Louvre, we know about the Musée d'Orsay, we know about a number of different museums, but here's one that most of you don't know about when you visit Paris and you should. It's the Musée d'Art et Métiers. Exactly. Which is run by our good friend here, the director, Yves Wankan. How are you, sir?
6: Well, now, uh, thank, thank you for inviting me, Peter. what métier means. Oh, Métier means more something like technique. It's actually an expression of the 18th century. "Arts et Métiers was one single expression, which is directly from the encyclopedia. You know, all those French philosophers the end of the 18th century. Uh, they wanted to lay out all practical knowledges, and they were hitting at engineers and artisans. That they, they wanted uh, to put in writing everything that was known in terms of techniques. And now the revolution in 1794 decided to have a museum devoted to those techniques, so to new machines. And uh, strangely enough, it is A priest, the Abbé Grégoire, who suggested the revolutionaries to create a new museum, which would be some kind of a training ground for the Industrial Revolution that he was thinking. He thought that it was coming, and he wanted artisans to be ready for the next revolution.
0: Well, this actually now, hundreds of years later, is the actual repository of one of the oldest collections of technical and scientific apparatus in the world.
6: I know. We have now, we were the first such museum in the world. And many other museums were modeled after us uh, years later. Uh, so there was Le Louvre for paintings, there was the Museum of Natural History for animals and plants, and Harryware we for machines. And we were mainly uh, prospective museums. We wanted to train for the future. Now, 200 and so many years later, we are more like any other museum, a retrospective museum. We have 80,000 objects. Did most, you say
0: 80,000? 80, 80,000.
6: Most of them are in our storage rooms outside of Paris, but we have 3,000 on permanent display here in, in downtown Paris. Give this. me an
0: idea. We talk about machines. Give me an idea of something that's going to surprise people when they come to see
6: it. Well, you're going to have, of course, steam machines. Sure enough, they were at the heart of the new industrial revolution of the 19th century. But you're also going to have the first plane that ever tried to fly. I said try. I,
0: I, I knew you said <laughs> right?
6: uh, It looked like a bat. Uh, it had a steam engine in front. You had a Not attack. a lot
0: of steam-powered planes, I might add. Yeah, 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 it was
6: a steam-powered plane. That yeah. was the first and the last. <laughs> we are uh, at the turn of the century, and that didn't know exactly how to go about planes. You know? uh, for many years, there was a debate between those who thought that only engines lighter than air would go off, that is, balloons. And there are a, a few crazy people who thought that no, um, engines heavier than air could actually fly. But they didn't know exactly how to proceed.
0: So let me ask a silly question. If this is the first and last steam-powered plane, I'm assuming somebody tried to fly it. Oh, yeah. And oh, did yeah. a crash.
6: Yeah, Clément Adair tried. And he, uh, actually, the tiny little wheels did not crush the grass for about 300 meters. And then the plane crashed. But he actually built three models but he was under military contract so the first two models were just burned by the army as military secret and luckily enough we kept the third which is almost flying in our majestic hallway uh, but in in reality it
0: never did fly
6: it did fly a little bit you know it just (laughs) sort of jumped you
0: know so uh, sort of like the Howard Hughes Spruce Goose, it flew a little bit. And that a little was bit, it.
6: Yeah, uh, but you know there was a competition at the time with the Wright brothers in the United States. You know who was going to be the first to really fly, and the French say, of course, it is Adair, and the American, of course, say it is the brother Wright, the Wright brothers. Uh, that's one example. You know. That's a big enough one. Yeah, <laughs> and we have plenty.
0: Ama- now you're open every day, or no? We
6: are open every day, but Monday, as many museums in of Paris.
0: Course. Admission.
6: Admission, mission, yes, uh, but there are several categories, like children, like young people uh, who don't pay. Uh, every first Monday, oh, every first Sunday of the month is free. Uh, on Thursday night, is open until. 9:30, uh, So you have the museum for yourself. And uh, I would say entrance around €758. Euros. Euros.
0: Very reasonable. And if I show up as a steamed-powered visitor, do I get in for free? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh,
6: but be careful. You might be put in a case, right? And with a little label.
0: Well, listen, I'm a big fan of process rather than just product. And as long as I can understand the process, that's when I value the product. So every item in your museum really tells a story, doesn't it? It tells the story of, of what was tried, what, was work, what the technology was was like at the time and how that led to the technology that we, yeah. that we enjoy today.
6: Very often what we do is to try to have a series, so we the explanation is within the evolution of the engine. You see one step after the other and at some point you see the breakthrough uh, when uh, the invention is being stabilized and becomes an industrial innovation.
5: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really
0: don't care. My next guest, a Boston native, but calls Paris her home. She's the food writer and founder of something called Chow Down. Nice to see you again. Catherine Down.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I mean, you're still in Paris. Still in Paris. Still writing about it. Still writing about it. And let's talk about this because I have never been, uh, and I know this is going to sound uh, almost unbelievable, I've never been disappointed in the food scene here ever. It's like I can't find a bad restaurant.
2: Well, I'm very glad to hear that. There are bad restaurants. They do exist. I'm sure they do. That's why I have a job is because I help people navigate the overwhelming food scene in Paris and figure out where's the best place to spend their time and their money when they're here. But we are overall extraordinarily lucky with the quality of the products that we have and the French dedication to...
0: And, of course, in that common definitional argument between style and substance, in the style department, you don't go wrong at all. I can't figure out an outdoor cafe that I wouldn't sit at.
2: Yes, and this is a particularly nice time of year to be here for that. There's a real culture of the flaneur in Paris, which is um, the person who strolls and walks through the city. And so a lot of the cafes, the tables are oriented with everyone seated towards the sidewalk. It's
0: it's people watching on steroids.
2: Exactly. And it's culturally encouraged, and you are supposed to linger. You know, you can kind of spend as much time on the terrace as you want, which is wonderful. Although,
0: I'll give you a lesson that I learned in Italy. You tell me if it also applies here in France. When you sit down at one of these cafes, um, obviously there's a menu, but if they bring you bread, yeah. you're, you're charged for that.
2: No, that's more in Italy than it is in France. Yeah. Um, and in Italy, it's coperto, and they there will usually be a charge on the menu. In France, it's not the same, but they also don't tend to bring bread before the meal. They bring it alongside your main course. We have Extraordinary Butter here, but they don't actually serve bread and butter together. It's usually just sort of meant to sop up sauces, and um, so you don't fill up on the bread basket at the beginning of the meal the way that I tend to do when I'm back in the States.
0: Now, this hotel has a particularly dangerous location because it's basically a half a block from Beaumarchais. Bon yes. And for those people who've never been to Beaumarchais, bon you are warned, you are cautioned, <laughs> it, you're going to go nuts in there.
2: It is pretty I walk in there
0: and it's on three or four different levels I mean you can go to the houseware section if you want I tend to stay in the food section yeah you walk in I mean just the cheese section alone
2: oh it is fantastic and it's a really good one for this time of year because a lot of cheese shops are closing for the summer holidays and people will go away for two to six weeks and so a lot of the cheese shops right now their selection is actually dwindling but someplace like the Marché, that's going to stay open all summer you can go there and know that you're going to have an incredible selection
0: now, I may be different than other people in fact I know I'm different than other people when it comes to this I'm a huge fan of the the stinkier the creamier cheese is the one I like well it's you're in the right really country <laughs> and they've got the stinky cheeses in there
2: oh yes definitely uh, they've got
0: one that I can't even find in the states anymore called Sam Marzellan okay yes and it comes in its own little ceramic dish which you get to keep after you buy it oh yes but if you're going to get that cheese make sure you, the people you're with understand what you're eating because the smell is unbelievable but it's the most amazing cheese.
2: the bark is worse than the bite too it always smells yeah. a lot stronger than it actually tastes and that one because it comes in a little ceramic dish you can actually pop it in the oven with a little drizzle of honey oh. on top and oh. I find that it helps people get over the smell.
0: It's amazing cheese but of course the politically incorrect statement of the foie gras section yes. of the of Beaumarchais bon is also pretty intimidating.
2: Yes, oh definitely I think it can be a little overwhelming to walk up to you know some of the displays there because they're so beautifully done and um, but they have an extraordinary selection, they work with incredible producers
0: And then last but not least for me the favorite is to go to the seafood d- display because it's not just the seafood, it's the shellfish they bring in all the oysters from Normandy, still in the boxes. Yes. That they came off the boats. It's its unreal. It really is. But oh. Forgetting just going shopping at Bon Marche, yes. which you can do easily from Lutetia, which is why it's so dangerous. Uh, you've got so many other places in town that I like to go to. I mean, I i, I have my shopping list, you know. There's the macaroons, but I don't go to La Doree. I go to Parami. That's the best. See? theres I go to Fauchon, because they make the most incredible cheese-filled crackers. Oh, wonderful. I haven't had you, those, nah, those yet. Ah, you're the
2: <laughs> Thank you for the tip.
0: Yes, <laughs> and then... And I have to tell you this, I am a pescatarian. Mm -hmm. I haven't had meat in 10 years, except once a year I make an exception. And that's here in Paris. I go to a restaurant called L'Hide, H-I-D-E. So about a block and a half off the Champs-Elysees with an Asian chef, an amazing French-Asian fusion menu.
2: Excellent.
0: And he makes the most amazing pan-fried foie gras.
2: Well, if you're going to, you know, break your pescatarianism, you that sounds like the right way to do and it. I'm telling you,
0: I go down in flames. It's amazing. But let's talk yeah. about your hits now. Yeah. Where, where, what's the new stuff on your on your list?
2: Oh, there's so many right now. Um, the one that I am particularly enamored with in this moment is called Cravin. It's out in the 16th arrondissement. And it's um, a team from Fragments, which is a wonderful coffee shop in the Marais, and uh, one of the co-founders of Le Chateaubriand, which is consistently on the world's 50 best restaurant list. And so they felt like, okay, there's nowhere that I can go where I can have cocktails all day, where I can have coffee all day. Um, And so they're open from 8 to 11, seven days a week, which is incredibly rare in Paris. And they have just flawless, perfect little bites, like a beautiful croque madame. They have incredible hot dogs, which I know sounds strange, telling an American to come to Paris and eat a hot dog. But it is um, wrapped in brioche with an onion compote. Uh, they
0: have so basically the hot dog is, is basically coincidental to a fabulous brioche
2: no exactly it's all about the the bun on that one um and then it's a beautiful bar from 1911 so it's got the um it's got the wonderful tiles from 1911 the zinc bar it has a nice terrace and so you go there and it's the cafe that you imagine going to in paris except the food is just completely flawless you have incredible cocktails and really good coffee all day long
0: now i'm still a fan of brasserie lip Okay, Only because it's, like, so traditional of the original brasserie where the the waiters have been there for 50 years, and they don't really care about what you want. They're going (laughs) to tell you what you should order.
2: No, I mean, I think the attitude in a lot of French restaurants is not that the customer is always right. The customer is frequently wrong, and you are there, and the chef is the expert, and they're an artist, and so you are spending your money for their, you know, artistry. Um, It's a very different attitude than in the States.
0: Now, my favorite bookstore is located conveniently next to that place. It's uh, the Galliano's bookstore, mm-hmm. right, right? Next to the Hotel Maurice. And on the other side is Angelina.
2: Yes, the very famous Angelina.
0: I mean, this is not just hot chocolate. This is a nap waiting to happen.
2: Yes. Oh, instantly head on the table. Head on the, I'm <laughs> telling
0: you it's how rich is it?
2: It's incredible. It's very thick. It's very dark. It's not too sweet. Um, it is wonderful. But I have to say, I actually have one that I prefer over Angelina. I know here. Angelina no? has the history, but for me, it's Jacques all the way uh, G-E-N-I-N he is in the Marais uh, he has a Salon d'Ete the there the Marais is um, a neighborhood, um, you know, right along the Seine. It's the, the third and fourth arrondissement. Um, and when he first opened up there, not a lot of other chocolatiers of his level had opened in that neighborhood. They're all in the Saint-Germain area because this is where, you know, the neighborhood is more associated with luxury now. And uh, in the Marais, it was a little bit edgy for him to open up at the time. And now all these other it shops. it wasn't such a
0: hot neighborhood. It then. wasn't
2: such a hot neighborhood. And so it's really gentrified as his shop has been there. And now these other chocolatiers are opening up shops in that area following suite so Pierre May has opened up a macaron shop, Patrick Roger has opened up a chocolate shop, but Jacques Chanin um, was sort of the leader in that neighborhood and he has an extraordinary hot chocolate.
0: Okay, can I ask a stupid question? What makes it an extraordinary hot chocolate?
2: Uh, just the quality of the chocolate, the cream, the experience in Paris a lot of restaurants will sort of jam tables all together. You kind of have your knees up to your chin and there the tables are
0: incredibly far apart. They have So the Alain Ducasse version of hot chocolate.
2: Exactly. You it looks like a temple or a museum for chocolate whenever I walk past it it looks like a shop that should be selling luxury handbags it doesn't look like a chocolate shop that I've ever seen before um, and so you're it's a real sense of luxury when you're there they put on white gloves whenever they're putting oh, together on. boxes of chocolate so they have these 144 piece boxes of chocolates and they will put on white gloves and, and by the way Catherine knows one. it's 144
0: pieces because she counted every one
2: <laughs> I have no restraint when it comes to that place <laughs> I could eat the entire you know box by myself uh, but he makes my favorite hot chocolate and you can order a whole side bowl of whipped cream but he also does a chuckco uh, entire
0: side bowl a side of bowl cream? of
2: whipped cream that has um, Tahitian vanilla in it you can see the flax. this isn't and... a
0: nap when didn't happen this is a deep sleep
2: oh absolutely but it is it is well worth it um, and he does a chino as well which is uh, his version of a mocha that's very decadent and that's the lighter option the diet option compared to the hot chocolate so. all
0: right now here's a stupid question for you but mm-hmm. it's, it's a touristic question yeah When was the last time you took a bateau mouche
2: Uh, probably four years ago. Um, But it's not a bad way to get to know the city. For the first time. For the first time, because a lot of the major monuments and museums are clustered along the water, so it is a nice way to sort of get oriented. We don't have much air conditioning here, so having a bit of a breeze as you're on the water is a nice thing as well. I
0: I have an admission to make. Recently in London, I've been going to London since I'm 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Recently in London, I did something I never thought I'd ever do, because I'm an elitist. I got on the hop-on, hop-off tour bus.
2: And what did you think?
0: And I put the headphones... I loved it. Excellent. I mean, you know, for somebody who thinks she knows everything, I didn't know half of that stuff. <laughs> and I, I, I really learned. I would like to do that here in Paris. Oh, good. You yes. can do it.
2: I've never done one, actually. I,
0: yeah. I did about some which, and and it's great. The, the one to really do is if you're in Berlin, on yeah. the river there. Then okay. you really see stuff. Excellent. But here, if you've never did, done it, do it once. And I'm one of those guys that do it during the daytime. Yeah. And the only reason is at night, it's better to walk around and have your moments in the night with, with, the, with the Eiffel Tower lit up and everything else. Yeah. Because of all the monuments in Paris, that's the only one that I know that is truly blazing at night.
2: Yeah. And for the first five minutes of every hour, it'll glitter as well. And so it's, it's nice when you can see it at the very beginning of the hour.
0: All right. So we've dealt with hot chocolate. We've dealt with my addiction, my once a year addiction to foie gras. But what's your new special one? In terms of, of a food experience here in Paris,
2: um, the ones that I'm most excited about right now, there's a couple of restaurants that are doing uh, French Asian fusion in a really well, that's interesting that's, way.
0: That's like uh, uh, yeah.
2: exactly like the place you love. Um, there's one in the 11th called La Rigmarole, and oh, I um, love the name. it's a great name. And you can do a tasting menu or you can order à la carte. And they are working with a Japanese grill, and they're doing all different interesting kinds of skewers of really unusual cuts of meat that you don't often see so it's for more adventurous eaters um, and the pastry chef comes from three Michelin star background so you're getting you know three Michelin star quality pastries in a neighborhood restaurant
0: by the way that's three Michelin star quality butter yes exactly and more butter and wine <laughs> and cream <laughs> <laughs> um
2: but i also love there's a new place called cam c a m And it's a real restaurant industry favorite. It's um, a Korean chef, but he is doing really interesting um, Japanese, Korean, and French food all mixed together. They focus on natural wines, which is quite trendy in Paris right now. Those are wines that use as little sulfites or stabilizers as possible. The idea is that um, the fruit is supposed to shine. um, But for people who are more into traditional wine, um, it can be an interesting experience because they can be a little cloudy or a little fizzy in ways that you would not expect a lot of wines to be um and it's really good people watching it's a fashion industry hangout so if you just go and you sit there you know it's just incredible to stare around the room and see the famous chefs who show up um on their nights off and to see the fashion industry people so it's a lot of fun for people watching and eating
0: well one of the great concept books that have come out in the last couple of years of course is where the chefs go to eat yes Right. So where do the chefs go to eat in Paris?
2: They're going to Cam right now. Um, they're going to Yard Wine Bar, which uh, has been around for several years, but it just reopened recently under a new partnership from a wine distributor and uh, a website called Culinaries. And they have a beautiful terrace. It's near Père Lachaise Cemetery. And that is where you'll see all the chefs on their night off. They're and Of eating course, Perilous
0: Cemetery is where, guess who's buried?
2: Oscar Wilde, Edith Pidioff. And? Um, Jim Morrison. There you
0: go, from the doors,
2: All the best dead people are, are at Perleuces. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to the cemetery, you can go to a yard for lunch, or the wine bar opens up at 6 p.m., and they're doing smoked langoustine tails that have been smoked over hay. Uh, it's a chef who used to be at uh, Vivon, which is a great wine bar, he used to be um, at Sauternes and a number of other really fantastic restaurants in Paris. And he's just doing some unusual stuff at the wine bar there.
5: Okay,
0: the one meal we really haven't talked about is breakfast. Yes. So, so enlighten me as to your hot pick for breakfast here in Paris right now.
2: My hot pick for breakfast right now. Um, well, breakfast here tends to be pretty light and sweet. The French love pastries in the morning. Or I they do, noticed that. Yeah, yeah shocking. They, um, they do, you know, bread and butter. They do yogurt. But it's not sort of salty, savory things like sausage or eggs like we are used to. So that more um, Anglophone-style brunch can be hard to find. Uh, I do love a cafe called Muscovado, which is in the 11th. And it's two sisters from the Philippines. And she was a pastry chef in training, and she has some really wonderful pastries. But then she does a more Anglophone-style brunch. She'll do um, different egg dishes. She'll do avocado toast, things like that. So if you want a heartier brunch, Muscovado oh, no, is a great French place to The French are big on
0: avocado toast these days. They
2: are. It's become very popular, which is shocking because it's really sort of out of their wheelhouse to do something Savory like that in the morning.
0: No, you um, see it on every breakfast menu. How would you like your eggs with avocado toast? No, exactly. Right? Oh. They, just, they butter it with avocado.
2: And she does a wonderful version there. So I highly recommend going to Muscovado. Um, if you're looking for great pastries, in this neighborhood you've got Poilin, which is a bakery that's been around since 1932. Walking
0: distance to the hotel. Walking obsession.
2: distance to the hotel, and they still have a wood-burning oven, which is quite unusual in Paris because now they're illegal, but they've been grandfathered in because they've been around for so long. Riding along in my automobile My
7: baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at wwwaudiblepodcastcom travel today to get a free audiobook and 30 day trial. Uh, my next guest, is a member of a group that I know quite well and that you should know quite well if you travel anywhere around the world. It's Le Claidor, otherwise known as the Golden Keys. You'll see that from, on their lapels when they stand behind the concierge's desk. And he's the head concierge at the hotel, Lutetia, and his name is Bastien Lalanne. Is it Lalanne? You, you can say it Lalanne, yes. Okay, I did it. Well, thank you for having us. Obviously, you were, you were at, a, a, at another hotel before this one because this hotel was closed for nearly four years.
7: Four years. Yeah. Actually, four years and a half.
0: Wow, longer than I keep on thinking. Yeah. Wow. I will share this story with you because it, it, I, I do this all the time. When I was coming to Europe for the first time, I was 12 years old, and I remember walking in with my mother in Cannes into the Carlton, and, and by the way, it's still designed the same way. There was the hotel reception desk, and there was the hotel concierge desk, two separate and distinct areas, and my mother was terrified of the concierge. Because they had their own separate bill, their own—it was a separate entity, really. True. And the first thing she said to me when we walked into the hotel is, "Don't ask them anything." <laughs> uh, she also walked me into the hotel uh, de Paris in, in, uh, in Monte Carlo, uh, or in Monaco, and she took one look at the hotel and she looked at me. and She said, "Don't touch anything." <laughs> uh, but I mean, we've come a long way from there, and yet we haven't. Because if you take a look at the traditional definition of a hotel concierge, you guys are all-knowing. You're all connected. And when I say you guys, I'm also talking about women as well. True. Um, that you are connected in a global network of concierges so that you can be in touch with any concierge at any other hotel in any other city in the world to be able to make my day better. But yeah. it's not about just you getting me tickets to a movie or a theater or tickets on the Baton mouche. It's much more than that.
7: It is. It is much more than that. And actually, it's indeed a, a worldwide uh, association. Uh, we are now... Um a little bit more than 4,000 members all around the world. And we're indeed able to solve any type of problem um, of our guests traveling around the world. At any time of the day or night? At any time of the day and night. Yeah. I mean,
0: what have been some of your challenges?
7: So many of them. So many of them. Um, I remember one in particular um, that was a few years ago. And we had a traveler coming from uh, the States through London. And, you know, as you go through security, you have to uh, drop all your belongings, and particularly your uh, metal belongings, and you just drop it in a box, and you go through the gate, right. and then you retrieve it after right. the gate. And fortunately, that person forgot uh, the most important bracelet uh, she had from her family, uh, and she just forgot it in the box, and she's... In an uh, that was actually that was the train station. That was the Saint Pancras train station. Of course, she was taking the the train. Huge station, where you have millions of people every day, and she just forgot it, and she just came to see me at the desk and and was crying, and she asked me for assistance. Well, who do you call? I called a friend,
0: a Gold member in London. You know what it is? (laughs) We we have to call this what it is. Concierges should pride themselves on a very New York stay. I know a guy. You know <laughs> a guy.
7: True. I know a guy. Yeah. I have a friend. You
0: had a friend. And you called.
7: <laughs> I have a friend in London. And so I asked him if he has any contacts at the train station. Uh, and he had contacts at the train station. So then I started calling people at the train station. My contact uh, friend helped me as well getting in touch with the right person, the right service. and have Please somebody. tell me they found the bracelet. I won't tell you the end of the story right now. I tell you the process first. (laughs) So we found people looking around, searching in the station, asking uh, many different people. And at the end, indeed, they found the bracelet. So uh, what we did, my friend sent somebody at the train station to pick up the bracelet and have it delivered on the same day to the guest in Paris. And by the
0: way, when you do things like that, the guest comes back and stays again. True. <laughs> <laughs> they remember that connection.
7: They remember it. They yes. remember it. And that was, uh, that's, a, that's a great sovereignty for all of us.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I've heard stories of concierges getting calls at 10 o'clock at night from somebody who wanted to, to charter a 747 the next day. And they found it. They found I mean, it. You, uh, unless it's illegal or immoral, uh, it's about everything you can do you can do.
7: Yes, but it has to be legal.
0: Yes, we It know has that.
7: to be legal. It has to be legal, otherwise, we, we don't do it. Um,
0: but if it's legal and strange, you can do it. Yes, we can. We can. I know. Yeah. It's just. I mean, I've heard about, you know, white lions in hotel guest rooms that they, somebody wanted a white lion or a white tiger. They found them. <laughs> they do, yeah.
7: Yeah. And uh, in Cannes, you were talking about Cannes. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine uh, got uh, some, um, those were like kangaroos for a party by a pool. In a big villa near Cannes during the Cannes Festival. And let me guess, some of the other guests were
0: hopping mad. (laughs) No, just okay, I I couldn't resist. Welcome
4: (laughs) to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
0: American visitors to to France or to Paris for that matter they may go to the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay they may know about you know Notre Dame or some of the neighborhoods they might even go over to uh, the Eiffel Tower you what a surprise but not many of them know that there's an amazing place here in Paris called the American Library in Paris. And what a great history it has, and what a great resource it is. And joining me now, the Assistant Director at the American Library, Abigail Altman, who, by the way, is from Albany, New York, and came here 20 years ago for love. Not only did she stay, she just celebrated her 16th wedding anniversary with her husband. Abigail, welcome.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You expat you.
5: (laughs) I can't help it. I've lived in Paris longer than any other place in the world now.
0: And no regrets.
5: No regrets. I love it here.
0: And even even though you came 20 years ago, when did you get involved with the American Library?
5: I'm actually in my second stint at the American Library right now. I first worked there about a decade ago. I had been a bookseller and decided to have a career change and become a librarian. Uh, and I was hired at the American Library. And I worked there for about two years. And then I left and did something else, worked in a school library. And now I've been back for five years. Wow. Now, people
0: don't really know much about the American Library. You don't see it in the guidebooks. You don't see it mentioned lot, but it's a fixture here.
5: It's an absolute fixture. We're about to celebrate our centennial. We were founded in 1920, just after the war, Uh, and we're an unbelievable resource for anybody who's interested in the English language, uh, reading in English. The library is a private nonprofit, so everyone who uses the library needs to be a member, but this said, tourists are certainly allowed to come and buy a day pass, to come read magazines, read newspapers, use the internet, and of course, we have a very vibrant speaker series during the season so people can come and listen to authors and journalists, artists, uh, cookbook writers uh, who are speaking at the library in the evenings. Uh, Those events are free and open to the public because we have a foundation that sponsors them.
0: Now, it's one thing to talk about events or reading a magazine or having access to the internet, but you have a rather interesting collection.
5: We do have an interesting collection. We're the largest English language library on the European continent.
0: That's a wow right there.
5: It is a wow, and I think we've been this size for 50 or 70 years. Uh, We have 100,000 books uh, and magazines. We have a periodical archive that includes magazines that are found nowhere else in Europe. Uh, that researchers come to consult. We have an archive of fashion magazines that many students of fashion come to look through. Uh, So we have an eye on what might be hitting the runways in the future, depending on which decades are requested.
0: Now, as a writer myself, I'm still in love with libraries. I grew up in New York City. My library is still a half a block away from me, New York City Public Library. And yes, I can work at my house, or I can work at my office, but when nobody's looking, I'll literally walk a half a block over to the library where I know no one's going to call me, I can't get on my cell phone, and I can just upstairs sit there and
5: think. That's absolutely why people come to the American Library to work We certainly have our share of readers who check out books and come to events, events for kids or events for adults, but the reading room is full every day with people who are studying, uh, people who are researching or writing, uh, people who are working on projects they can't possibly do in a cafe or even a co-working space.
0: All right, they can't do this at Starbucks.
5: No, sometimes we say we are in competition with Starbucks for Wi-Fi and comfortable chairs. Uh, The library renovated two years ago, so we feel like the space now uh, maybe exceeds people's expectations.
0: And how is the library financially supported?
5: The library has been private since 1920. We originally started to uh, provide books for American soldiers who were serving in Europe, uh, and books were sent over as early as 1916 and 1917. Uh, But in 1920, after the war, there was a collection of English language books in Paris uh, and a library that was very popular with soldiers and civilians after the war. So we had the opportunity to raise the funds and become a private nonprofit, which we have been ever since. And you've been self-sustaining ever since. We have been. We don't get any money from the French government. Uh, we don't get any U.S. tax dollars. Memberships memberships support about 25% of the operating costs. The rest is fundraising, donations, gifts, and grants, including our annual gala. We just had Salman Rushdie come and speak. We are in our fourth address now. Over the years, we're in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, just at the Champs Élysées. Um, Wow. Yes, on a small street called General Camus, so you need to use your map. Right, but easily accessible. Uh, Absolutely. Metro, buses, on foot. All right, so right before the
0: break, I brought up the idea of Ernest Hemingway working on your newsletter. He did.
5: Uh, Ernest Hemingway did write for our newsletter. Uh, We had a newsletter in the 1920s called Ex Libris, which we reinstated in the 80s and still is going strong today. Uh, I suspect that he was coerced into doing so by Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein was a member of the library and a donor and a user of the library. And in one of the editions of Ex Libris, they have dueling book reviews of Sherwood Anderson's biography, A Storyteller's Tale. So they each write their review of this particular book.
0: And you had so many legendary writers or American expat writers who've gone through your doors.
5: We have, and I'm constantly finding in the archives traces of other people who have been affiliated with the library over the year. Uh, Edith Wharton was an early trustee, Gertrude Stein. We had a relationship with Sylvia Beach. Uh, She donated books to us from her lending library at Shakespeare and Company after the Second World War when she wasn't able to reopen. Uh, We have a very interesting collection of books that belonged to Marlena Dietrich, and I brought one to show you. I'm very sorry we're on the radio and no one else can see it. Well, I can see it. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Miller, Julia Child, um, Colette, Ford Maddox Ford, Richard Wright. It's a very long list of people who have passed through the library's doors. And it continues to today. Uh, We have authors who are well-known and aspiring who come and use our space and who speak at our evening events. Great. Okay, tell me about the books you brought. (laughs) I brought two books to show you. One uh, is from Sylvia Beach's Lending Library that she donated to to our library in 1951. So you can see it has her book plate and then our book plate in it. I see Shakespeare
0: company, absolutely.
5: And the second book I brought is from the donation we received from the Marlena Dietrich estate. After she died, we received books from her grandson, um, which were in English, many of which were biographies, which she had annotated in red and black felt-tip pen with the words not true all over them. You're kidding. No.
0: Biographies mm. of her?
5: Yes, biographies of uh, Marlene, where she has annotated herself. This page says, everything is not true. <laughs> So a little bit of revisionist history. Actually, should
0: said everything's not true, and I want to be alone. Mm. Right, and and she was for quite some time.
5: Interesting stuff. Uh, Yeah, I believe she was housebound uh, in Paris at the end of her life. Wow,
0: and yet now you're open every day.
5: We're open six days a week. We're actually closed to the public on Mondays. Uh, but like, we're open, like the museums? Like the museums, uh, we need a chance to be able to put the books back on the shelves and take a breather. <laughs> In the summer, we do have reduced hours, so if people are visiting us during the summer season, they should check the website. And the website is? AmericanLibraryInParis.org By the way, the
0: history of how the library started, I think, is fascinating. About the soldier who died? <laughs>
5: (laughs) When we had the opportunity to transform the collection of books that had been sent over to U.S. soldiers into a private library, we were able to do so only if we raised enough funds to become an independent institution. And the major donor who stepped up in 1920 was Charles Seeger. His son, Alan Seeger, was a poet who died for France. He had joined the French Foreign Legion even before the U.S. joined the war. He died in battle, I believe, in 1916. Uh, And. And the library was founded in part to commemorate uh, his sacrifice and to memorialize Americans who fought for France.
0: And you had your own lending library. You were sending books to the soldiers when they were in the hospitals.
5: Absolutely. We sent books to training camps, uh, to hospitals. In the Second World War, we resumed the practice as well. At that point, we were working with the American Library Association in order to send the books out. Our original location, which is on Rue de l'Elysee, it's now part of the Presidential Palace, so unfortunately you can't visit it anymore. But we were sharing the space with the YMCA and the Red Cross and using their vehicles, I think, to get the books out to the training camps.
0: When somebody visits the library, what's the biggest surprise they're not expecting?
5: A very friendly sense of American customer service. (laughs) I think that's the thing that makes people happiest when they come in. Is there customer service in America? Absolutely. We're known for that.
0: <laughs> no, I said in America. Mhm. Okay. No,
5: the yeah. we have many non-Americans who are very pleased with the friendly welcome they get and many expatriates who need a dose of friendly welcome. Uh, and who are come you to a librarian? Library? Absolutely. Members are allowed to borrow the books. The only books that don't circulate are the ones in the special collection, like the Marlena Dietrich book I just showed you.
0: I love everything in here is not true.
5: Right. <laughs> Our most popular section is the kids department you, and you, the teen minute, you department. You just gave me an idea. Yes.
0: We should go to famous people around the world, show them the biographies about them, and ask them to annotate them, <laughs> right? And then come out with an edition annotated by them.
5: I think that would be quite popular. And,
0: and, and I have a great uh, sort of a, an imprint. We'll just call it Revisionist
5: History. Perfect. We'll stock that in the library.
0: Next year in the Revisionist History edition of. Right?
5: Why not? Sounds like a great right idea. The wagon's the wagon too slow. Can't you
8: ride?
5: It's not that he can't ride.
1: How is it you put it home?
6: They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Mm. How do I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? <laughs>
0: Next guest, an American journalist. She writes for Afar, Conde Traveler, but most importantly, she's the author of a book called *The New Paris*, which was published last year by by Abrams. And her name is Lindsay Tremuda. How are you?
3: Good. Thanks for having a me. A Philly girl. Yes, indeed.
0: What brought you to Paris?
3: <laughs> Studies. I was. Years ago. Twelve years ago, I was I was studying French literature and linguistics, and I knew that eventually I'd need to come to Paris or somewhere in France to actually. Put those skills into practice. No, and to justify your education. That too. I think my parents would be happy <laughs> knowing that I actually made that next step. But uh, that, that ended up changing my life. A short trip ended up changing everything. And so I found a way to come back and then stay and never leave.
0: You know, you talk about a new Paris. I first came here when I was 12 years old with my parents and my younger sister. And I was always told, oh, the, par- the Parisians are aloof and they're rude. Since I'm 12 years old, I've never had that experience. No. Um, I I fall in love with this place more and more, not less and less. And yet you came out with a book called The New Paris. Right. Um, In what way is it new?
3: It was really an attempt to say that all of the things that make it special and magical and that... that has been romanticized for generations is not the whole story. That actually there's this other super progressive side of Paris, uh, a Paris that's actually looking forward and, and looking to change and adapt with the changing world uh, and isn't hemmed in by its past. There's this thought that Paris is very much a place, it's it's a living museum city. That's, we've heard that time and time again. But in fact, there's so much more going on. And this book was a way for me to show exactly in what ways that's happening. What
0: well, would it be safe to say it's it's a, it's still a living museum city we're not going to argue that point but is it a living museum city that allows all the new stuff to happen
3: in a way i mean i think that it wouldn't continue to attract the people even to its new elements if it weren't for the old i mean i think that's that's indisputable it will always be an attraction okay so let's
0: talk about the failed art history majors that still think they have to go to the louvre once before they die i got it because they've got to see that little bitty painting called the mona lisa i got it that's inevitable you're still going to have Mm -hmm. those visitors but now they get a chance to do something else
3: yeah, I mean, there's a lot that's developed even within the city in terms of uh, urban development. I mean, if you if you look at the section between the Musée d'Orsay, another museum that everyone should visit, and And the album but you know of... what I
0: love about the Musée d'Orsay? What? It's not just the
3: exhibits; it's the light. Oh, the light and the space itself is uh, is magnificent. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a lot to be said for a former train station because that was all about the light as well. Exactly. And, and they kept it,
3: that. And it absolutely, I mean, we, we, we I could talk about how the exhibits themselves are, you know, try to be progressive, but really, I mean, just outside the Musée d'Orsay. d'Orsay is are a few steps that lead down to the riverbanks that used to be open to cars. And now they're now that space, it's about 1.5 kilometers along the riverbanks, are completely reserved for pedestrians. And It's
0: all walkable. It's all
3: walkable. They have activities for kids, bars, cafes. People are exercising outside. I mean, there, it, that is a way that the city gave back to its, its population.
0: We're talking with Lindsay Tremuta, the author of The New Paris. Other than some pedestrian walkways being open, right. what would you say is the biggest cutting-edge Development that you see.
3: Well, we could talk about how the city has become a major tech hub. Uh, an innovative which you hub, expect. which you wouldn't expect, but in fact, it's it's outclassed Berlin, which was previously sort of the emerging star in tech and startup and startup life. And you know, with Brexit, people are are being encouraged to come and set up their businesses in France versus London. Um, so so that puts Paris on a map in a way that it never was visible before. Um, and then you have just all this foreign talent that's flocking to Paris. So whether that's in the arts, in fashion, or in food, which is obviously the biggest, uh, one of the biggest magnets to Paris that outward energy, that that openness to foreign influence, I think, is one of the biggest things that has changed in the last 10 years.
0: Wow. And how has it changed you?
3: <laughs> well, I don't think I ever need to live anywhere else. I think Paris <laughs> is, it, it, it tackles everything that I would want in a city. It has its ills. It has its, you know, exciting moments. It has um, change. Uh, and it's always beautiful, even in the spots that aren't traditionally beautiful.
0: Now, as an American living in Paris, let me ask the obvious question. Because Paris in the last three or four years has certainly had its share of incidents yep. that scare a lot of people mm-hmm. from coming here. It doesn't scare me. I understand, and I'm not being cavalier about it. Mm. I'm just trying to be practical about it. Your friends back in the States, do they think you're crazy?
3: You know what? No. I think there was a moment of obvious concern, and, and I, that was understandable. My parents, same thing. They were concerned. But at the same time, it's it doesn't take long to realize that it's not necessarily traditionally safe anywhere. I mean, even within the United States there are there's danger. Um, and I think that's what what my closest friends realized is that whether I'm here or, you know, in a small town in Ohio or, you know, in the middle of Germany in the in the, in the Black Forest, there's there's potential for something. Uh, and you can't let yourself stop living before for that.
0: You know, when you think about the fact that only 37% of Americans even have a passport, Um, that automatically puts you in the category of being a rebel. Because not only do you use your passport, you've chosen to live outside the United States. This is true.
3: I didn't think of it that way.
0: Well, most people would say, I couldn't do what you're doing. And yet, you seem to manage pretty well.
3: I think it was a question of feeling already like maybe there was something else out there for me. Um, as much as I love the the states, there was always this feeling that I was being pulled in another direction, and it just so happened that that came through another culture and another language, and. I I came at a time when I was already transitioning into you know my adult life. I ended up going to grad school here. I got my my first job here. So
0: it's can I give you a hint? Yeah, you don't ever want to transition into your adult. life.
3: <laughs> I don't Why know would I you had, want I to do that? I don't know how I had a, that. I had any control over it, but it <laughs> happened, and you know I think that's a transformative period. And so yeah. because that's when I came, which was pure. You know, chance or circumstance, uh, that really set the course for what I was going to do. Had I come later, maybe it would have been more difficult to make this a permanent stay.
0: Do you see yourself going back to the States to live?
3: Honestly, no. You're, which, which yeah. uh, you know, I say that and my parents are like, yeah, we kind of knew this. But uh, no, I mean, <laughs> so I. So you are the rebel? Uh, I don't know that I would use the word rebel. I would just say that. Uh, You're living an unconventional life. I guess so. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. <laughs>
6: charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting
8: it back quickly is
0: $4. Joining me now, the general manager of the hotel, Isabelle Bouvier. Hotel manager, Peter. Pleasure being with you. And pleasure having you. And thank you for having us. Uh, you and I have known each other for a while. You've come up through the ranks of a lot of major luxury hotels. What makes this one different?
8: Um, you know, nowadays, uh, Each luxury hotel in Paris is having a a tremendous history to tell.
0: And a lot of them have been restored, they're coming back,
8: whether it's the Crayon, many of them. Absolutely. They all have a terrific history. They all have a terrific design. I would say that nowadays, what is making a hotel special for our guests, it's not only the level of luxury that the hotel is providing, but also the level of experience and emotions that the hotel is providing. Well,
0: let's talk about that because in true storytelling style, we're talking about a hotel where Ernest Hemingway hung out, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, Picasso, Matisse, Josephine Baker, César, Lee, you name it, unbelievable. Yes, and you know, you, you go back to the Woody Allen, f- you know, film Midnight in Paris. You can see that happening right here at this hotel.
8: Yeah, absolutely, and that's part of the magic that the hotel is providing to the guest. But as I was saying, I mean, there there are always beautiful stories in all of the Palace Hotel in in Paris, in Europe, in the world. Um the thing that we are also providing to the guest is truly the living like a local. Um, all of our guests are having luxury houses and apartments. Therefore, the level of luxury that is uh, provided by the hotel is at least what our guests guests are expecting. Now, we are much more focusing on providing the experience of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, of the left bank, of what is making this hotel special. And that is truly the experience What
0: what what does that mean? That
8: means walking in the streets. That means walking in the real, authentic Paris. That means when you book a a room in this hotel, you will also enjoy a tour of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, of the left bank. We have designed um, three different tours. One uh, really targeting the historical heart of saint germain And telling the story of uh, the Jardin du Luxembourg, the Panthéon, Notre-Dame de Paris, Saint-Sulpice, the church Saint-Germain, the whole uh, church, Abbey, history of the left bank. Uh, The other one... uh, really focusing on on the food, on the gourmet art of the left bank in Paris as well, going through the uh, pain poilane, the famous uh, poilane bread, where you can go down. Walking
0: distance to here.
8: Absolutely. It's across across the corner of the street, the rue du Cherche Midi, and that's where you go down and you see the heaven and the the hoven. How do you say? The oven.
0: Oven, yeah. Which could be the heaven too. It's
8: a heaven, absolutely, for the gourmet, and, and that is dated of the 12th century. And that is really what is making the guests of the hotel feeling like living like a lo- local in Paris. And I think that through these emotions, you make um, even some um, some uh, further deep souvenir of their stay with us. And, and that's part of the luxury experience, what you can offer to the guests that is maybe not uh, the uh, top monument of Paris, because all of our guests know the Eiffel Tower and uh, the Sacré-Cœur in Montmartre, but they may not know that the heaven uh, of the is dated 12th century and can be visited through our uh, link with
0: our concierge. And that's a cool thing to do. Yeah. But speaking of history, you've just gone through an almost four-year renovation, mm-hmm. or I should say restoration if you want to look at it that way too, yes. of, of an iconic building that's over 117 years old. Yes. It took a long time. I know that every time I've come to Paris, and I sort of got seduced going over to the Bon Marché. As I went by there, I would always see the scaffolding and the construction here, when are they going to open? When are they going to open? You just did. Yeah. Finally. Um, we
8: belong to a, a small group of hotels called The Set. Uh, whether it is the Cafe Royal in London, the Conservatorium in Amsterdam, or the Lutetia in Paris, the goal was really to for our group to buy a historical, a truly historical property. Uh, at the heart, in the heart of the city, and, um, and Jean-Michel Villemot took over the renovation, the restoration of this project, being a very famous architect. And his goal, or his goals, there were a number of three. First one was to restore the hotel to the beauty of 1910. And that has taken a very long time to restore the gallery, to restore the frescoes that we find under six layers of paintings in the breakfast
0: room. Did you know they were there?
8: We kind of knew they were there because we had seen some uh, photographies of the beginning of the 20th century.
0: You were hoping they were still there.
8: We were hoping exactly that they were still there. We didn't know precisely. So we had to go through the architect of the Batiment de France who are specialized in anything that is historical in, in France. And they've made so Research and they find they find out that there were still the frescoes. So it was seventeen thousand hours of restoration to get the frescoes back into the uh, what you see today in the Bar Josephine.
1: Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant
5: seventy-five dollars (laughs) and sixty-three
1: cents.
0: Perhaps I've saved the best for last. He's the executive chef here at the Lutetia and quite a, a repertoire he has. Uh, Benjamin Brielle, how are you, sir? Very good, thank you. Uh, you've worked in so many different hotels. I mean, the Ritz being one of them.
9: Yes, exactly. I used to work in Paris in the Ritz, uh, correct? Also in the Four Seasons, George Saint as well, yeah.
0: Yes, and, and by the way, I will tell you a compliment from me from the old George uh, George 5, uh, uh, the Four Seasons. Your lobster sandwich <laughs> was unbelievable.
9: <laughs> thank you very much.
0: There used to be, by the way, a great lobster sandwich next door at the Prince de Gaulle, but they took it off the menu. Yeah. And you, ha- I mean, that's uh, I keep you, you did it. I mean, that was the lobster sandwich.
9: Yeah, no, we uh, that, that's a great dish that we was doing and uh, we are doing it uh, as well here at the, at the Lutetia. Okay, at so without sandwich.
0: revealing the secrets, what makes a great lobster sandwich?
9: It's about the quality of course of the product. First, uh, the lobster uh, that we are using. Uh, we use Brittany lobster and also it's about the seasoning. So, so we have... From, from Brittany? So, yeah, correct. Yeah.
0: Everything, comes, everything that's great comes from Brittany. The butter...
9: Yeah, boy yeah. oysters.
0: Exactly. Come on, Brittany. Yeah. I mean, yeah,
9: Beautiful product in France, uh, all over France, but uh, especially, uh, that's true, in Brittany, we can find a lot of best products. Like you mentioned about the cream, the milk, uh, butter, oyster, seafood, uh, langoustine. So uh, it's a lot of uh, beautiful products.
0: But when you're reopening a hotel like this, you yeah. have a certain challenge. Yeah. And maybe it's a, an, it's also an opportunity to figure out, okay, these are the ovens I want. Th- this is the equipment that I want. This is the way, way I want to work. This is how I, w- I want the kitchen design. Learning from past mistakes and applying those lessons.
9: Exactly. Exactly. Since the beginning, I arrived on the project. Uh, I mean, it was really uh, the link with the owner here. Uh, he gave me the opportunity to start with the blank page and to, to draft everything from the choice of the equipment, uh, the concept of the menu that we are doing, etc., etc.
0: So are there, are there, I always like to say, okay, what's your wish list? Did you want a pizza oven? Did you want a smoker? Did you, what did you put in?
9: Plenty of equipment, to be honest. Uh, we have like a charcoal oven, for example, for the room service. So it's one of the specificity you cannot find in a lot of rooms. service menu a charcoal grill so we implement here Uh, after it's a lot of equipment that you can find somewhere else but it's really about the design the way that it is uh, to make sure that the team on a daily basis uh, they can work with efficiency that's the most important and speed and speed exactly the key is the speed uh, because the guests don't want to wait so for example we managed to have the all the kitchen on the same floor uh, right next to the restaurant this is the key
0: so the actual distance between the oven and the and the table is not Exactly, exactly so be careful because the plate's going to really be hot.
9: (laughs) Exactly, that's true.
0: (laughs) What's the one thing, you know, you just reopened, so maybe it's too soon to tell, but what's the one item that you wanted to put on the menu that you figured, you know what, everybody's going to want this. This is going to be my best dish ever, and it didn't work out. Or what's the one dish that you said, do I really have to put this on the menu? No one's going to want this, and everybody wants it. Yeah,
9: I will start with the one that uh, we're a bit surprised. Maybe it's very simple things. For the Bar Josephine, we implement a salmon riette. So it's something... And the Bar
0: Josephine named after Josephine Baker
9: yeah exactly, yeah. right. And uh, this salmon Orette we was not expecting that is going to be the buzz, and it's a very simple thing that you can uh, you can I okay, mean,
0: tell me about the construction of that dish.
9: Uh, it's a very basic dish. It's something that uh, that at home you cook. Uh, so it's salmon rillette. It's a slow-cooked salmon uh, mixed with Philadelphia and some spices, uh, lemon zest, orange zest. So it's very, very basic. But people, they just love it. Come for a well, drink. you can't go
0: wrong with salmon.
9: You spread it on a, on, a, on a nice sourdough bread, and that's it. And we was not expected, and we love we with the team because we're going to call it the, the lutetia rillette. It's already uh, okay. the highlight on the menu. It's very simple. It's affordable, but everyone go for it. Any items on the menu now that date back to the original hotel? Not really. We completely rephrase the the offer. I used to to work seven years in different places, in Shanghai, Hong Kong, London. So uh, we start really again with a completely new concept, uh, something really different. Which is? Uh, So our concept is a French contemporary food, pairing, travel, and sharing. This is our concept. So you can find it uh, all over the place in the Lutetia, from the Bar Josephine to the Restaurant Saint-Germain, Banquet and Room Service. This is the link between all the outlets.
0: So, any other, order you can share
9: exactly every single dishes that you if you come to the Saint-Germain restaurant every single dishes is is thought uh, about sharing so the fish is already uh, separated in two so the dish you can have it on your own the portion is right for 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 one people Uh, but you can also share without cutting in front of everyone so it's really easy they contract and people they love it.
0: Now you've lived all over the world.
9: So, yes, uh, not all over the world, but uh, some. Well,
0: not South America yet, but you were Asia. E- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right, you were over in in, in in Shanghai.
9: In Shanghai, yeah. Hong Kong. I moved then to uh, to Hong Kong. So it was really interesting. It's uh, five years in Asia that you you can learn a lot about management. You can learn a lot about people, about product, how to make great things with uh, very little things. Some some country like China is very difficult to uh, to work because you cannot have all the product. You can't so, source it all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Here you can. Here you can, yes.
0: I mean, you can get anything
9: here. Exactly. Every day.
3: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all.
3: From the outside looking in, we we're, were blessed. My mom...